I, I think if we want to find more of the ravages in the future, then we need to encourage our students and our young people to get some varied experience and to not be afraid of not being an expert in one thing um, such that you can you can be a generalist and get exposed to a lot of things, if that makes sense. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Altarescu, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before we hop into today's discussion, let me mention that I recently completed Rage, Bob Woodward's latest attempt to explain Donald Trump to us all. I've been reading Woodward since All the President's Men in 1974, and Rage was almost as compelling. Also, as evidenced by the first presidential debate, and based on what we may see post-election day, this book is aptly titled. I also recently completed These Truths, Jill Lepore's really great history of the United States. At the end of her masterpiece, Lepore quotes from theologian, ethicist, commentator, and professor Reinhold Niebuhr to sum up our current state of affairs. Quoting, If we should perish, the ruthlessness of the foe would be only the secondary cause of the disaster. The primary cause would be that the strength of a great nation was directed by eyes too blind to see all the hazards of the struggle. And the blindness would be induced not by some accident of nature or history, but by hatred and vainglory. That is really depressing. But we're taping a few days before the election, and I'm hoping that our eyes will be opened and there will be far less hatred post-November 3. Hoping. On a far more positive note, we have a really great guest today, introduced to me by Ben and Eden. I'm very pleased to have with us today Andrew Wilcox, a product of Utica, New York, and of Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. Welcome, Andrew. Man, I just started these truths, and that uh, that quote is a pretty good transition into what we're talking about today. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, Andrew and I have been trying to get together for quite some time. Uh, in the interim, Andrew introduced me to his brother, Alan. Alan and I discussed A Gentleman in Moscow on the podcast earlier this year, right before we all quarantined. Great book, great discussion. When I originally reached out to Andrew to ask him what he was reading, Andrew said that his current reading then included Shakespeare's Hamlet and How to Read and Why by the renowned literary critic and Shakespeare scholar Harold Bloom. I started reading Bloom's colossal work on Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, several years ago. This is a good reminder to get back to that. Despite his intense interest in Shakespeare, Andrew chose to discuss books that reflect his interest in government and cities, and maybe politics as well. Andrew, you originally mentioned to me that you were reading and proposed to discuss two books, the Richard Ravitz memoir. Richard Ravitz was former head of the New York State Urban Development Corporation and of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the MTA. His memoir is titled So Much to Do, A Full Life of Business, Politics, and Confronting Fiscal Crises. And the second book you mentioned is Keeping at It by the great former Federal Reserve Board Chairman Paul Volcker. I then mentioned to you The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, which describes Donald Trump's disregard for the value of the federal agencies that we've all seen and their personnel who provide critical services that benefit us all. I also mentioned Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning, 1977, Baseball, Politics, and the Battle for the Soul of a City by Jonathan Merla. I discussed Merla's book on my most recent podcast. 
When we subsequently emailed, you mentioned Jane Jacobs' classic, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, and also Lewis Mumford's Studies of Cities. And then most recently, (laughs) you do a lot of reading, you mentioned uh, the new JFK biography, JFK Coming of Age in the American Century, and a Nixon biography. That's quite an array. Tell us about some of these books, your interest in government and cities, and your thoughts about the future of what was referred to in Hamilton as the greatest city in the world. Andrew, this is just a fascinating body of work that you've just read. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, it, but it, it's, it is fascinating. I mean, one of the reasons I think I started pursuing some of this reading was because it wasn't clear to me how things worked behind closed doors and how uh, politics and policy came together. And, um, you know, this group of books can help get you started down that road. And I think at the end of the day, it's funny to to take away being basically, you know, there isn't some set of uh, functions that you, you know, you put inputs into and they kick out outputs and that's how you figure out problems in the public sector. You know, it's, it's as simple as talking to people. You got to have relationships with people. You got to be interested in subject matter, but then you, you ultimately collaborate to get things done. And it's, you know, it's just like anything else in life. So spoiler alert, that's, right. that's the, <laughs> the outcome of all this. So w- which of these books, uh, we've mentioned a number of them, w- was most compelling, was most revealing to you that uh, you learned the most from? I think, so Michael Lewis is the fifth risk, I think was the most fun to read just partly because he's such a an engaging writer but getting deep inside the department of energy and the ufda and the department of commerce and getting a sense for the various and many things that these organizations or agencies are responsible for that a didn't know existed um, and now realize are critical or thought someone else took care of Um, so that was i would say that was a fascinating and eye-opening read in terms of yeah, getting examples of how people actually kind of hit the pavement and make things happen. Um, Dick Ravage's uh, memoir is special, you know, because the New York City political and government climate is as crazy as it can possibly get, I think. Um, and to hear firsthand from someone who's made his way through that jungle and come out successful on the other side is, is a good one. So I would definitely point out those two books. And, and Ravitz, uh, he sp- his work uh, with the city spanned many years, but it overlapped with um, the 1977 Bronx is Burning time. I think it was, was right. it 74, 75, the city almost went into bankruptcy. Yep. And I believe 75, yeah. 75 and, and uh, he, he was involved in with Felix Royatan in, in putting the city back into uh, financial health. Yep, that's right. I mean, I think... And it's funny because why was he brought in to do that uh, is the question. And that's one of the questions that the book explains. And it, it really, as I was saying earlier, comes down to the fact that to solve gargantuan and very tangled problems like, you know, a debt crisis in a big city, which has stakeholders um, as far reaching as the federal government, the state government, um, obviously the city government, to unions, to real estate, um, to banks. And in finance, when you have such a complex group of stakeholders who all have competing interests, the most important skill at that point that you need to tie all these things together is a person with enough relationships in each of those baskets and enough credibility with those various players to be able to get them to sit down at the same table and start speaking the same language. Um, and, and so Ravage's 
past and his career to that point had dealt in enough of those sectors and had been successful in enough of those sectors that he was seen as, you know, the person who could kind of sit at the head of that table and get things done. Um, and, you know, it's, that's kind of the magic to why he was brought in and how that got solved or prevented, I should say. It's, it's a great summary. Um, when you talk about the magic and you talk about credibility and relationships, as you were speaking, I was thinking really boils down to experience. And, and, and that comes through as well in uh, the Michael Lewis book that there are people in the federal government, uh, in the agencies that have been at their desks doing this work for uh, years and years, decades in many cases. And uh, they, have, they, they know, they know where the bodies are buried. They know how to get things done. So um, you don't have to talk a lot about the current president of the United States who has no experience whatsoever. And, uh, and the people around him, unfortunately, uh, were brought in, many with no experience. And uh, what Ravitz did, I think you're right, is was uh, feasible only because of what he had done in the past. So how do we identify uh, going forward individuals uh, in politics who can make a difference in this way? Again, I'm going to avoid talking about the current current political situation. But do you have thoughts right. on that? How we can identify the future ravages of the world? Exactly. Um, yes. You know, that's, it's, it's a really good it's a, it's a question I won't have an answer to, but a, a few things that are brings to mind are um, that these people are in some ways accidents of history. You know, we don't prepare our younger generations to become these types of people, especially in this day and age where you're you're taught to go to graduate school, become an expert in something, specialize, and that's going to be your path forward. Um, and that when, when that's kind of the mode of our society, it's very difficult to find examples of people who are going to deliberately break that mold and uh, take the risk of having a diverse experience in their career such that, you know, 30 years down the line, they become this kind of outlier, uh, this maybe unicorn type of individual who has the breadth and the experience and, and the relationships to do that. So um, they, I guess that is to say that these people are hard to identify because, you know, they're not, I don't think that they're often seen for being what they could be in the moment. They often surprise us. So there's that. And then D, I think, we just we don't encourage uh, people who are of this caliber to join public life enough. So, you know, the people that I would identify who could have this kind of capacity, um, unfortunately, probably are spending most of their time in other sectors. So I don't know, maybe that's a discouraging outlook. But I, I think if we want to find more of the ravages in the future, then we need to encourage our students and our young people to get some varied experience and to not be afraid of not being an expert in one thing um, such that you can you can be a generalist and get exposed to a lot of things, if that makes sense. It does. One of, one of the many hurdles. So talk about the Kennedy book and the Nixon book. Two yeah. interesting books to read together, of course. Oh my God. Each of those characters is totally fascinating. And I think the uh, stereotypes that we have about them are maybe 60% valid and maybe 40% um, needing an adjustment. The thing I was surprised, you know, I was coming at both of these people relatively green. Um, I hadn't done much reading on them before other than, you know, the things that I'm told in high school or whatever. Um, You know, I was surprised in large part at how aggressive and political and kind of deeming the Kennedy clan was. Um, you know, largely coming from JFK's father, Joe Sr. And I was equally surprised at how emotional and reserved and thoughtful Nixon was. 
<laughs> and how uh, both of these qualities of, of each of these men, you know, didn't end up, it, it, you know, it's not how we know them. Um, that was the most interesting, just the paradoxes between their, their the public version of themselves and the private versions of themselves. Is, the gap was enormous. That's, that's so interesting to speak to someone who hasn't read the uh, the literature, the Kennedy literature and the Nixon literature at the time. You're much younger. And so, of course, you yep. haven't. But um, I was interested. I read one biography. I think it was it might have been the New York Times of the Kennedy book. And it indicated that this was a fresh look. Uh, when you mentioned the Kennedy book to me, I thought to myself, I've read so many Kennedy books, but yeah. uh, it may well be that uh, a fresh look is is timely. Well, I think the thing that made this new, uh, Frederick Logoball's new biography of JFK different, you know, because how much writing has there been about this man in the past and why do we need another is that the writing in the past has largely been done by people who knew him directly or journalists, you know, people like Schlesinger who had an eyewitness kind of point of view on things. But what we didn't have, and I think he's opening up a new branch of historiography maybe, uh, is a biography of JFK that's largely set in the context of the time. So it's as much a history of the first half of the 20th century for America as it is a biography of JFK, because I think Logoball's point of view on this is it's nearly impossible to appreciate the man and, and the man that became president without really understanding the times that he was growing up in. So it's, you know, it's equal parts history and biography, which is why I think it's a fresh look. Yeah, and I like that, that you know, Caro, that's Caro's approach to Lyndon Johnson in his, exactly. uh, in the four, four huge volumes that have been published. Uh, somebody said to me, how can you write four volume biography about anyone, much less Lyndon Johnson? And the answer is he really told the story of his times. Of, exactly. of Johnson's Times, and uh, it's very well done. Uh, this looks like a far more manageable volume, one volume, much shorter. Volume one, right. Yeah, but um, I look forward to reading it. And, and, and yeah, it's great. Tell me again, what, you, you mentioned the soft side of Nixon. What, mm-hmm. what is it you learned about uh, Richard Nixon that was appealing? Well, I think, you know, when you take each of these people back to their roots as children, you know, JFK coming from a very wealthy and very prominent family on the East Coast, and then Nixon coming from a very poor family in California, whose parents were completely neglectful of him, whereas JFK's father at least spent a lot of time engaged in their lives and directing the course of their futures. Um, Nixon, Nixon was a neglected kid, and he didn't come from much. Uh, he was very bright, but I think that at least the way the story was told to me in this book was he was longing for the acceptance and the validation that you would normally get from your parents, which he never got, and that uh, it created a shyness and a reservedness and um, a desire to be liked, which contrasted with a lot of his outward characteristics, which was he was kind of gruff and impersonal and um, it, it created a dilemma, I guess, in his life that he was always trying to overcome. You know, there were notebooks upon notebooks of his diaries where he would write to himself every day when he got up, you know, here are the six characteristics that I want to try to embody today as president. And it's thoughtfulness and it's caring and it's um, inspiration and being a kind person. Um, And when you when you go inside his mind a little bit and see that he was constantly, at least, you know, earlier on trying to be a person that he could look up to and respect and it never really happening, I find um, unfortunate and kind of depressing. And, and it makes him a character that you can start to, you know, back up a little bit. And of course, things totally unraveled because, you know, the flip side of him was that he had this immense kind of paranoia and impulsiveness, which 
spiraled out of control. But as a human, I can I can understand, you know, why a lot of this maybe wasn't necessarily his fault. He was a uh, certainly a tortured soul. I remember in, in the context of my comments about your interests earlier, I remember always thinking of him as a Shakespearean character. Exactly. Uh, the um, His desire to do the right thing was undermined by his upbringing and oh, man. by so much else. It, and he, An evil man, in my view. Yeah, I think an evil man, but I, I do think you're right. He is Shakespearean. He's a completely tragic character. And he embodies a lot of, you know, even what Hamlet embodied, but, you know, I would say on the darker side of the spectrum um, in terms of this constant toiling in his head over, should I take action? Should I take vengeance uh, on these individuals? Or do I need to kind of restrain myself and act presidential and things will, you know, play out in my favor if I do? And constantly battling internally between those two things, but then ultimately almost always um, choosing vengeance instead of the lighter path, which is really why he was a tragic character because he ended up destroying himself in that sense. But at the same time, you know, there's also examples where there's a a whole lot of evidence that he actually did uh, win the 1960 election versus JFK by by a margin, a small margin, despite having uh, some leads on the fact that the JFK crew may have played him a little bit on that. He decided if he were to contest the election, it would just, you know, throw the country into more chaos. So there, you know, there were parts, he's a complicated figure. I mean, <laughs> for it, sure. It's hard, it's hard to go all the way with him in one way or another. So we, we've, uh, I'm saying we, as if um, I speak for a group, which of course I do not, but I, I've always thought of the 1960 election and uh, how uh, Mayor Daley in Chicago turned that election uh, and the expression that was used was vote early, vote often, which, of course, yep. today has fallen into disfavor uh, and, yep. and apparently is against federal law. But Nixon likely would have turned out the way he did under any circumstances. But particularly interesting was the contrast with Kennedy and uh, his disdain of Ke- Kennedy. And uh, and then the, the aura, even before he was assassinated, the aura around uh, JFK and his family and then Camelot and uh, everything that followed. And, and Nixon had none of that. And uh, he, exactly. he, he so much wanted it. And you know what? Their relationship is kind of emblematic, too, of this larger conversation we're having with, about Ravitch and, and Lewis and Volcker and all these books is that, you know, Nixon and Kennedy were friends early on in their congressional careers in the late 40s, early 50s. And there are stories about them taking a train ride together and having this, you know, sharing a cab overnight from uh, Pennsylvania back to D.C. and these conversations that they would have and this determination that uh, they were still here to work together, despite the fact that they were polar opposites and on different sides of the political aisle, um, that they, they still maintained a, you know, compassion on the human level for each other, of course, until things, you know, later on in their careers where they became direct opponents of, of one another. They It was still a time when I think they saw through basic politics of the situation in order to, you know, see each other as humans. So that's something I think we're clearly missing in our current context, which even someone like Nixon uh, got right, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Right. An important lesson. So uh, yep. ma- mention uh, the Volcker book again, because we haven't talked about that at all. Uh, what what yep. did you take away from there? So he, uh, you know, is making a similar plea uh, as uh, Ravage is making, as someone should do, and, and Michael Lewis is making the fifth risk. His is a little bit more straightforward in that he's just saying, look, we, good government is 
absolutely critical to our democracy. And, uh, you know, good policy is dependent on good management and a good conscience. And so he, he walks you through, uh, you know, his career, his incredible career, but specifically his time as the Fed chairman um, and tried to elucidate some examples of when um, it would have been easy to take the political, the politically um, expedient road out of a dilemma. And instead, you know, for example, he doubled down on um, feeding inflation and in doing so had to jack up interest rates, which, which made no one happy, but it ended up uh, making for good policy and saving the economy from the brink. So anyways, I mean, he's making a very direct plea that we need to Get young people who have skills and have a good conscience and incentivizing them to join um, the public policy arena because without those types of people, it's very easy to take advantage of the systems that we have and, and use them for the bad. So as you talked now and a few minutes ago about young people who uh, need to, or in order to be the effective managers we need in our governments, local and federal, uh, young people need a breadth of experiences. And as you've been talking, I've been th- thinking of Pete Buttigieg, uh, who yeah. has probably as broad a set of experiences, uh, except for Joe Biden, perhaps, as anyone who was in the Democratic field and who, uh, after I read his book and I posted some notes, uh, I said, I, I suggested that I thought he would be a, a leader of the future. Do you have any views about Buttigieg? Yeah, I um I agree with everything you just said. The one hesitation I have about him, which may be unfair because I don't know that anyone can escape this criticism uh, who plays around in these fields, is I am a little bit put off by what I perceive as narcissism on his front. Um, I think he's he's maybe a little bit too happy with himself. But that said, to get to that level. Every one of those people has to have that. Some are just, I think, better at hiding it than others. But as a as a person his age who has the kind of experience that he has and is as articulate and um, fearless as he is, it's hard to imagine someone better from my generation to be rising up the ranks. I, I would, I can't think of anyone. I think you're right. He's he's as good as our generation. I think is produced at that level yet. And on the question of his narcissism, if you don't love you. Who will? Fair enough. But uh, don't love you so much that I don't love you. Yeah, there's a fine balance always. So um, what are you currently reading? Oh, so that's a good question. So I, I just started, actually. I remember a couple of weeks ago you mentioned these truths in Joe Lepore's book. Right. And I had said that I read it at the beginning of um, the pandemic. But actually what I had read was This America, which is her kind of short follow-up to it. But So you encouraged me to... Um, to uh, go back and, and order it. So I just got these truths and I'm, you know, it's one of those things I, I noticed you take, you took a break from it occasionally to read other books because it's such a, it's like a thousand pages or so. And I'm giving myself till uh, the end of December to get it done. And uh, in the meanwhile, I'm going to be reading some Cormac uh, McCarthy novels. Oh, good. So that's kind of my, that's my goal for the next couple months. Uh, so I, I, I like that approach. I, I just said to the, the gang here in the house, I need some good fiction. I, I've, I've, oh, been on, I've been on a tear through current events. Exactly. And I need a break. Cormac McCarthy may be a good way to go. After um, after the JFK and Nixon books, because each of those were like 700 pages, and I was getting kind of tired at this point of just reading about this, you know, 
time in American history. And I followed it up with uh, Madame Bovary, which couldn't have been more out of left field, but it was a nice tonic. And uh, it's, it's funny because at a certain point, you end up kind of flying through nonfiction books because they're, they require a little bit less attention. And so um, it was nice to, with a book, you know, like Flo, Flo Bear, there's so much detail in that kind of novel writing that it, it just changed my metabolism a little bit, which I needed, which yes. is good. So I, I slowed things right down. I, I like that. Uh, and then um, where do you buy your books? I, I've been encouraging people, as, as so many others have, of course, to buy books at independent bookstores. Where, where do you buy your books? Yeah, I've been, um, so I got the JFK book on a whim at a Word bookstore up on Franklin Ave in Greenpoint. Um, some of the books I've been reading, I've just kind of had around for a few years and hadn't got to them. So I don't remember where they come from, but I have uh, been guilty lately of, um, of ordering books from Amazon more than I should, more than I need to, just because I'm lazy. I have no excuse. <laughs> um, well, and it's just, I, sometimes, you know, you get so excited. I'm like, I need to start this book tomorrow. And you just get so excited. I'm like, I know I can get it here tomorrow. That's the thing. I don't want to wait till next Friday to start reading this book, you know? So little, little Jake, who's now 18 months old, is learning to meditate. Wow. Just with deep breaths. And so uh, as I um, identify additional books, I'll call either Rough Draft Bar and Books in Kingston, or I'll call uh, The Golden Notebook in Woodstock. And it's never more than a week. Sometimes I have whatever I'm looking for, and somebody will pick it up and uh, off to the races. So this yeah. <laughs> let's just serve as another encouragement to buy at independent bookstores. Yeah, don't follow in my footsteps. And just a note for anyone who's listening, you know, I don't know if you've seen, but the strand is kind of on its last thread right now. Yes. So from this point on, as a reminder for me coming out of this conversation, everything I get from for the next you know, for the future, I'm going to try to get there. Yes, that's, that's a very good idea. We can't we can't let that one go. No, the strand is. Uh an invaluable civic and cultural landmark uh, in New York and for all of us who are book readers. So great. No doubt. Andrew, this has been terrific. Thank you very, very much. Stay safe and keep reading. Likewise. Say hi to the family. I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Follow us on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com, on Instagram and Twitter at bookwormsitw, and on Facebook at bookwormsinthewild. And message me to tell me what you're reading or email me at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support, including today's guest. And, of course, Carol is my muse. Little Jake, now 18 months old, his pup Stella, and Dave's dog Monkey are responsible for keeping us all in good spirits. The entire wolf pack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests, including today. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to AJ Falari, who is working on the editing with me. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. 
Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.